A Futile and Stupid Gesture is a biopic film starring Will Forte as Doug Kenny, the founder of National Lampoon Magazine and the writer of iconic comedy films Animal House and Caddyshack. The film is loaded with some of the funniest actors in Hollywood, and many of them are playing famous people like Gilda Radner, who's played by Jackie Tone from Netflix's Glow, and Chevy Chase, who's played by Joel McHale, who's soon to premiere a new weekly talk show on Netflix. Domhnall Gleeson is essentially a co-lead in the film with Will Forte, and he made the film flying back and forth from London, where he was filming The Last Jedi, and we'll talk about that in the interview. The film also stars Emmy Rossum from Shameless, Natasha Leone from Orange is the New Black, Martin Mull, who's so great as the older version of Doug Kenny, Brian Husky from People of Earth, and on and on. David Wayne, a frequent collaborator with producer Jonathan Stern, directs the movie. John, I wanted to get one thing on the record at the beginning. I introduced you last week to uh, Consume producer Andrew Steven. I told him that you played a farting midget in one of the early uh, episodes of Adult Swim's Children's Hospital, which you produced with David Wayne and Rob Corddry, you immediately corrected me and said that, no, in fact, you played Creepy Doctor. So I've checked IMDb, and IMDb actually credits you as Jackpot Doctor. I'm also Jackpot Doctor, but I got cut out. The very first line of the very first episode, uh, or the very second line, was me saying Jackpot. Now, I never cast myself in stuff. <laughs> and uh, Cordry, for whatever reason, thought this was a good idea. And he had a line for me, jackpot. We couldn't really afford actors that first season anyway. <laughs> and I don't know what he had in his head, but I had to do so many takes. It was one of these things like David Fincher. No, say it again. Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> and I, after 80 takes, it was, you know, I Who was directing, it. David? Uh, no, uh, Cordry directed the webs Cordry. the first okay. season. And uh, didn't it didn't stay in. Fart- I recall Cordry telling me when we worked on the when I wrote the oral history of Children's Hospital for Wired, Cordry telling me that you were a, a terrible actor, that you're just not 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 great material. Yeah, that's not news to me, um, <laughs> nor my wife. <laughs> but for some reason, Cordry was surprised by it. I don't know why he expected anything different. I never, for example, uh, it went to improv or UCB or all that nonsense that everyone does. John yeah. is one of the more successful people I've, I, in my circle of friends. Do you think that's because I didn't do improv? Is the improv uh, would the improv of? I think you just do what you do. You know your wheelhouse, and uh, <laughs> you're succeeding on all cylinders. I mean, it's oh wow. Impressive. I mean, but sometimes I feel we're like... here in the spacious, abominable studios in their sound cave. But I do feel like. My inspiration is to try and catch up to you. So as long as you always have someone ahead of you, it's like, oh, this guy's to really emulate. It. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, also just as a person, you think, how can I be just a better person? Thank uh, you, I John. At, I look to you. Thank you, John. <laughs> the movie's called A Feudal and Stupid Gesture. Where does that title come from within, within the movie or within Doug Kenny's background? I think they say it... Uh, is it the food fight at the Harvard Lampoon office? You go, this party requires a futile and stupid gesture. In our first... movie, yeah, yes, but it's actually a reference to it being said in Animal House, so which was oh. written by Doug Kenny. Where is it said in Animal House? Uh, I believe it's it's said right before the food fight. This uh... or is it the speech where he's like, oh yeah, yeah, right. It's of the course, speech. It's a, it's a speech where Bluto stands up and like agrees with him. Yeah, 
Yeah. What's his name? Tim Matheson gives a speech. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, um, I will say that for a long time, we kept th- trying to think of a better title because, well, people won't understand what this title is about. But we came full circle around. It's like, but that title is actually exactly the spirit of these people in this movie. And we couldn't we couldn't beat it. If you don't understand what it's about at the beginning, you certainly will by the end. Yeah, it's when they're kicked out of the college and he goes, this situation requires a really futile and stupid gesture on our part. Yeah. And we're just the guys to do it or something like that. That's right. And we're just the guys to do it. There are a lot of people portrayed in the film who are going to be a lot better known um, than than Doug Kenny. I mean, Bill Murray is portrayed in the movie and Gilda Radner and a lot of these people that I think you uh, will be recognizable from Saturday Night Live. When did either of you know who Doug Kenny was? I knew about him in the late 80s because I uh, was a huge fan of Animal House and uh, I believe Caddyshack might have already been out by then. Sure. Yeah. Late, uh, late 80s. 80, 81. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I had already uh, been a fan of those films and his credit was on the VHS at the time and so me and my comedy partners were a little obsessed with National Lampoon already. Uh, I learned about it eight years ago when uh, Peter Principato, uh, my producing partner on this, um, called David Wayne and I uh, into his office for a meeting and said, I have these two writers that I've been talking to and they have an idea uh, about subject matter that I think you guys would really like and that's very close to me. And they came in with a stack of every National Lampoon magazine ever. Those two people are writers and executive producers, uh, Michael Colton and John Abood. And we all knew all the other store, all the people that we've all heard of. And the man behind the scenes, Doug Kenny, was completely a mystery to us. Um, I, I can't even tell you if I'd heard the name before that day. But we got an education very fast and was fascinated by, well, the whole story, and that was the beginning. And you knew Colton and Abood, right? They had written on Children's Hospital. You know, I don't think they'd written on Children's Hospital before that day. Um, we all had mutual friends, and we're all from New York, and it was all part of the um, trying to scrape by, making a buck off of writing comedy uh, world there. So um, we were all familiar with each other. But after that... It's a relationship that, yeah, they worked on newsreaders in Children's Hospital and bring them into all sorts of writers' rooms. These guys are, um, you know, they're really a classic writing team in that you can see how they each have complementary skills and they temper each other or push each other. Um, It's not just two people that are like, well, you know, let's split our fee every week. It's two people that truly function great as a team. And split their fee every week, too. So you can get them. Um, you know, when you're putting together a writer's room, it's always very appealing to, to get a team. <laughs> two you for one. Two people, yeah. And was there a script at that time? There was not. There was just a pitch. And uh, there was a book written by Josh Karp called A Few Towns Stupid Gesture that was reference material that we optioned. And um, uh, But I would say that the research that Colton and Abood had done was independent of that book. That book ended up being uh, dovetailing perfectly with everything that they had been learning over their 
development stage. Were they Lampoon guys? Sorry to You're ask. right. They were Harvard Lampoon guys. They both wrote there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how they knew so much about Doug Kenny going in. Doug Kenny um, and a lot of the people portrayed in this film started the Harvard Lampoon. And the National Lampoon, as you can tell from the name, was inspired by the experience that people had writing the Harvard Lampoon. So uh, Colton and Abood, growing up through the Harvard Lampoon as writers, were well aware of that uh, that history. Um, but you know, you poke around and read people's bios. There's a lot of Harvard Lampoon people. Dave Mandel, our head writer, is a Lampoon guy. Yeah, there's a yep. ton of Lampoon Veep. guys. Veep, yep. Veep is one of it's one of the, it's. I mean, I'm impressed by so much that you do. But when I see you on Veep, Matt, I'm just blown away. Thank you, John. I give credit to the writers. Conan yeah. O'Brien came from Harvard Lampoon, right? Conan's another guy. Uh, and they used to get, in the heyday when Lampoon was making money, Harvard Lampoon got 10% of the gross or the net. That rings so that's well. why they had those crazy parties. After those guys left, they were still getting tons of money from uh, any National Lampoon movie. Because I met a guy who was around... After those movies broke, and he said there was so much money for parties that it was pretty decadent at the Harvard Lampoon for a while. I think they've kept up that tradition, from what I can tell. It's a very secretive world there. Y'all would have obviously looked at a, a lot of issues of the magazine as you were working on the script and working on the film. What what would you say is the brand of humor? It's a little profane, a little juvenile. What, what would you call it? I feel like... I, I got to play Maddie Simmons, and I got to talk to him on the phone. He was sort of the grown-up editor, if you will, who came from the magazine world and started the first credit card, Diners Club. So he was a business guy. He was not like a youngster, by far the oldest person there. But I believe he was the one who kind of keened me into what they were doing, which was basically they inherited the mythology of, like, the Eisenhower era and the post-World War II faith and technology and Boy Scouts and everything America is good. And so it was like, I think he may have described or I read this, that they were allowed to go into America's addict and deconstruct and tear down all these things we worshipped. And I think that's a lot of, for me, going into the film and reading the magazines after, you know, studying it, it's like, oh, that is sort of the theme. Like they just went after everything that we sort of valued or we held as holy and they just cracked it down and, and showed it for what it really might be. Penny, here! We are being sued by Disney for $8 million. Well, Maddie, maybe it wasn't such a hot idea to have Minnie Mouse flashing her tits. This was not my idea. I distinctly remember you saying, boys, it'll be fine. She has pasties on. This is completely my idea. It does sound like Maddie. Volkswagen is suing us for $30 million over your ass. I can't tell you how great it feels to be valued like this. The Mormons are protesting. The feminists hate us. The Catholics, what do we do to the Catholics? Liza Minnelli? The American Nazi Party. Oh wait, this is fan mail. I mean, it helps to feel like outsiders to want to do that. These characters, as you see in the movie, are insider outsiders. They're yeah. part of uh, a group that most people would be con consider impossible to join, these Harvard writers. But yet, our two characters, even within this special, privileged group of people, um, always felt like outsiders. And I, 
I speak for, I think, a lot of people I know and work with, we all, and probably most people in general, feel like outsiders. And that um, that gave them an opening to, from the inside, um, be critical of their own group. Um, but, you know, you asked a question, what does the writing remind you of? You know, uh, in many ways, uh, I keep thinking about The Daily Show and how I don't think The Daily Show would exist. Matt, you're on The Daily Show. I point. did some tour, tour duty on The Daily Show, yeah. I don't think The Daily Show would necessarily exist if that ground hadn't been broken for political humor back then. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's much more uh, current and specific, but the things they had to fight about back then, you think about how angry we all are reading the news every day and the resistance, and they had that then too. The Vietnam War was going on and it felt like no matter how much protest there was, you weren't making any impact. Everything that was going on with Nixon and politics then, I, I think people felt very impotent. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I see the the political rage or the the or or that the feeling that we can only communicate through uh, non traditional channels as as being what we've inherited from that, and that's a real benefit to yeah that society. sort of anti establishment uh, vein. Uh, yeah, it very much carries on through shows like The Daily Show, or uh, obviously early SNL was an offshoot of Lampoon, basically. So yeah, they inspired a lot of the satirical comedy. Yeah, Matt, one thing I thought was particularly interesting watching the movie as to the character that you play, I don't even think it uh, it occurred to me until well after I had seen the movie. But you're essentially playing a character who's I don't remember if the title was used in the film, but essentially the publisher of National Lampoon, and National Lampoon was in all of these different things outside of the magazine it did these live stage performances and these radio shows and it uh you know eventually did the movies and these other things and you're coming at this being one of the founders of the ucb which is you know live theater and you know you've done movies and you've done some other things and seen that organization moving across a lot of different uh, uh mediums and formats did that occur to you at some point that, that you had some similarities to who you were playing? Uh, I guess, sure, I guess I could see that, but emotionally I never felt, uh, like, if I go to UCB, I still play with the youngsters. Like, I don't feel like the grown-up, even though I am the oldest person when I do a show, but I always feel like I have the same mentality as the 25 or 35-year-olds I'm playing with, so I never felt separate. I feel like Maddie came from the business world, was never a comedy guy, was a numbers guy, which I've never personally been a numbers guy. Like, I'm just fortunate that people work at UCB that watch the money. So I don't feel like I'm similar to Maddie, but yes, I can see the the sort of empire, small empire I've been fortunate enough to bring to life. But it didn't apply to me. Uh, it doesn't apply to me as how I live my life at UCB currently. And the other thing I think I thought about with you um, playing that, particular character is that you were kind of a utility player in a small organization 
uh, and were at the opposite end of the competency spectrum than a, a sort of similarly positioned character that you play on on Veep. Is there a like a competency bucket you had to add things to to to, to do that, or did you think about it that way? Uh, I guess I drew on, I'm a dad. And so I drew on a dad sort of sentimentality. Like he cared about those kids, but he also had to be responsible and set boundaries, whether they liked it or not. And he never partook in the partying like, like a dad would. He's like, I know what you're doing, but don't do it at home. Go somewhere else and do it. So that was my simplistic approach. I didn't go deep on like numbers or publishing to be quite honest, but the emotional relationship I understood pretty well. That's interesting that you say that. I can very much see that the, your character is the re- feel thinks he's the responsible yeah. one there. Yeah, they're it's, doing whatever they want ultimately, <laughs> but the way he's behaving and like just talking to Maddie, like I had a couple hour conversation with him when I was at O'Hare Airport and I found him on the phone and uh, he fought in World War II, which is insane. He's still with us. Yeah, and he used to write jokes for like Henny Youngman. Yeah, and he came out of the publicist world, so he was like a macher. They called him. He was in the New York scene and he would go to Sardi. So he was connected with like artists all along, but he was never the true creative type. So he attached himself to these guys or he said yes to their, you know, magazine idea and tried to administer it the best he could, but he was never a creative force. Interesting. You know, uh, I've realized watching your performance in the finished film, Maddie, the character is the straight man. We actually have the same name, too, I just realized. Oh, my God. First name. Go ahead. Sorry. His last name is Walsh in the no, movie. No, no. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, maybe we changed that. Yeah. Um, Maddie, the character, is the straight man to all of these people, but when I watch the scenes with Maddie in them, he's the comic, re- not even relief, he's the comedy in those scenes. Somehow, all of the supposedly comedic characters are the straight man to Maddie, the straight man character. Um, well, he's a ridiculous yeah. personality with uh, just like his, I think he thought he, I, just the way they dressed us and he was smoking cigars and uh, and he had a very difficult, it's hard not to laugh at him like complaining about letters from the Mormons or compl- like that's what they're supposed to be doing. Like, I don't know why you're so mad. Yeah, he seems like the kind of guy that you would enjoy winding up. Yes, exactly. He is a perfect foil for that, yeah. John, the script is pretty unconventional as biopics go in, in, in some aspects. You've got a narrator who's talking to the camera, and you've got all these different um, periods of, of Kenny's life that you're having to cover often with you know fairly short scenes and then moving on and you've got all these actors playing real people who were going to be very recognizable uh as those people once you saw them in the film did you recognize the script as like oh this could be really good or this could be just a fucking mess oh well any movie can be a mess no matter how normal the (laughs) script is maybe even (laughs) maybe we're even cheating by making it so unusual and experimental to distract you from all the things that don't work. (laughs) But uh, there was an inspiration tonally. All of us separately um, love 24-Hour Party People, a Mike Lee film from, was Mike Lee? No, it wasn't Mike Lee. Michael Winterbottom. Michael Winterbottom, thank you. Uh, 
and starring Steve Coogan as a narrator who speaks to camera about uh, the early, late 70s, early 80s rise of uh, his new wave, new wave yeah. labels and bands. And so that was just one of our favorite films. And all of us at certain points in the conversation started holding that up as a role model for how to make uh, this kind of structure and approach work. And maybe we stole from it some, maybe we didn't, but we knew it could work because of that movie. Uh, we also, you know, a biopic is, I guess you want to be faithful to the spirit of the subject matter as well. So we kept asking, how do we tell this story the way these guys might have told the story if they were making their own movie? And I also think David's voice is very much to poke fun at the medium we are executing. Do you know what I mean? He That's deconstructs a... things constantly when yes. you're with him or uh, on stage or in the films he's done before. So it's very much in keeping with David's voice, too. That's a very a very good point. And you can and you can hear his actual voice at the beginning of the film, which is kind of a more of a David thing than a, I think that's something he's um, um, done maybe on Children's Hospital and and, and other projects that uh, it felt like his touch to me. I don't know if that was in the script or not, but it felt like a David touch. You really want to start there? Nobody cares about my fucked up family. Everybody has a fucked up family. Okay, I mean, there's got to be a better way to start a movie. Well, could you just introduce yourself? My name is Doug Kenny, and you probably have never heard How of about, me. What if maybe you say something like, I'm the creative force. Creative force. No, that's, that's blowing and, smoke up my own ass. I can't do that. I would say you did redefine comedy for I redefined comedy. Okay, I started the uh, National Lampoon. I did Animal House. I did Caddyshack, and I... Well, that's, that's the main stuff. What if you say, I was the man who changed comedy forever, but I couldn't change myself? Really? Blow me. I was the man who changed comedy forever, but I couldn't change myself. I like that. That was great. Oh, fuck. We can start at whatever point you want. Let's start this film at Harvard, because that's where the fun stuff was. Okay, that sounds perfect. We're rolling, so go ahead. Oh, okay. <clears throat> it was the fall of 1964. Oh, David's voice at the beginning, it wasn't even, uh, it wasn't originally in the script. Um, that, I don't remember if David threw that in while we were on set that day recording, shooting those parts. I mean, to be honest, that that particular moment was uh, a pickup shot, what we did um, after we had an edit, because we, we knew that we were going to uh, figure out a lot of what we needed from the narration after we had cut the film and started screening it. So the whole introduction was something that we picked up late in the game, and and uh, David's voice. Listen, D David, David's voice to you and me and Matt is definitely very recognizable. So I, when I hear it, of course, it cracks me up immediately. Yes, but I, I want. Hopefully. Uh, Hopefully there's enough people that know his voice. Well, talk about that opening scene a little bit. I don't know if it's the first actual scene in the movie, but it's it's very early uh, in the movie. It's Martin Mull talking to camera, being directed from off screen by David Wayne. What What is that scene about? Yeah, you're right. It's the second scene. We start with a flashback to Doug Kenny uh, going to a funeral when he's a, a young boy. And then we suddenly cut to the present where Martin Mull... Um, it, it portraying Doug Kenny today is talking about 
now whatever aspects of the movie we're about to see to to kick off the movie. But uh, there's another balancing act you do here too, which is uh, as that character, just like us as a movie, we don't want to say, "Oh, you, well, this is so important, and this is everyone's so funny and so important. You got to hear this story." But yet, that is the way we feel about it. If it wasn't an interesting story, why would we want to tell it? So how do you intrigue people enough to see it, but still be immodest enough? And that was all through the character of, of Martin Mull. So he's self, we, we made him more self-effacing in that scene so that if he's self-aggrandizing, it could be a turnoff as a character. And I think the whole movie is always looking at that line too. How do we indicate to the audience that this is funny or uh, has a larger context without patting ourselves on the back or laughing at ourselves. I don't know. Matt, what do you think of that stuff? I think it's tricky to do a film about comedy and it probably earns the audience. uh, It brings them in if you're making fun of yourself. I definitely think that's a wise move in a film that's you're treating comedy as a very worthwhile subject matter so it's always tricky because you don't want to sound like a pompous blowhard yeah why this is important so you have to take the piss out of yourself i totally agree with that well that's also what david wayne was so good at is an awareness a self-awareness that these characters have and these scenes have that it you never feel like they think oh we're so funny in many ways, they're always thinking, and we're not really being very funny right now, but it makes it very sincere. Um, David has a, uh, yeah, he, he has a way of, I mean, some people call it meta, but I would say of having himself and characters be aware of their circumstance and comment on comedy while still living in that moment. It's hard to, hard to describe. Mm-hmm. John, was there a meeting pretty early where you and and Peter Principato and David Wayne were just spitballing, like, who can play Ivan Reitman? I mean, how did you talk about who would play these recognizable people? Oh, well, Allison Jones, our casting director, just told us who we had to cast for a lot of these roles. That's not true. It's absolutely true. You Doesn't cast it, friends in this movie, though. Well, in, in some cases, but Ivan Reitman... Um, I'd never worked with Lonnie before, uh, but Allison just said immediately. Allison cast Veep, right? Uh, she cast the first three oh, and, seasons. And now Jeannie McCarthy? No. I don't remember the name of her oh, casting okay. agent. Well, anyway, Allison uh, said, all right, well, here, here, here should be Ivan Reitman. And yes, we're all friends with Gamberling, and we're all friends with John Daly. But she also just said, well, yeah, Gamberling's going to play Belushi, right? Like, uh, Right. Right? You said it, so I guess How so. about Joe Latrulio? Oh, well, okay. Joe was playing a character that hadn't really existed before. Right. A composite character. Of the studio. He's like a studio exec. Yeah. A studio head. Yeah. So you're right. That's just, that's casting. I mean, Joe's amazing and everything, but that's somebody you probably go, well, wait a minute. Joe. We're going to get Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just underwrite this part and Joe, Joe will make it work. Yes. <laughs> so somebody like Lonnie Ross, who, I, I mean, for me was one of the more, like, just fun to watch embodiments of the of the person he was playing do you just bring him in and dress him up as ivan reitman and do a screen test and like eh, does this work yeah i think it works i mean is is that how I guess if, you cast for for 
if we were a big studio film, we would have. In this case, um, no, we said, oh, yeah, yeah, he, Lonnie Ross, great. We know his work. We like him. Allison says we should cast him. Matt, uh, Matt Walsh likes him. And he gets a Matt Walsh seal of approval. So he goes in for a fitting, and someone parades him out on set in his costume. We're like, yeah, that, yeah, that looks like uh, Ivan Reitman. I thought Brian Husky looked like Landis. I thought he was a great likeness. Yeah. Were you shocked by that? Were like, were there characters who came out of wig and costume? Like, holy shoot! Like you kind of knew Lonnie because Allison said. Well, but like Brian blew me away. For example, like I yeah. saw him. I'm like, oh my god, Brian! I didn't realize you looked like John Landis. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Jackie Tone is Gilda Radner. Yeah. Hey, here I, I'm coming in right here. I am a woman. Louis, Louis, uh, Gilda, so so do that again. Start the band up, make them go, and then all you guys stop her immediately. Okay. I am a woman. Good call. Um, that was another, you know, I, I'd never worked with Jackie before. I would be thrilled to work with her every day. She's, obviously, she's very good, but... That was another Alice and said, no, I have Gilda for you. Okay, so we don't need to worry about auditions for that one. Um, there was someone who I was really surprised by. Uh, Armin Weitzman is Lorne Michaels. Yes. Lorne, it's Doug Kenny from the National Lampoon. Hi, Doug. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks. Like the show? It's uh, great stuff. Right. Well, you know, we do what we can. Um, Doug... Uh, you get the kind of comedy we're doing here. Uh, you and I, you know, we share a sensibility. And a cast and writers, yeah. Spotting talent is the most important job I have. Uh, you can understand that. Yeah. I was wondering, would you be interested in joining us? But Armin, uh, I mean, we all loved him, love him, and so we said, well, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll get costumes, wigs, somehow they'll make it. And I think it was Allison again, and David, uh, also, who said, no, no, if you look at Lorne Michaels when he was young, he actually was very similar to Armin. You know, uh, uh, we think of Lorne Michaels yes. as kind of a wasp. Lorne Michaels was Jewish. and But he, we think of him as this gray-haired sort of erudite. Yeah. But he, was, he wasn't always that guy. He was like a dude from Canada. That's yeah. right. So uh, that one was. And um, Joel McHale as Chevy Chase uh, if I, I'm constantly remembering how watching him work at a distance, you know, in the movie you're seeing him in medium shot and close up most of the time, but when you're across the room and you see him, his body language, forget anything else about his costumes or his wig, his body language was Chevy Chase so convincingly that that to me, that made him Chevy uh, more than anything else. Yeah, he... I'm blowing. Yeah, he's so great as Chevy. He really impressed me too. Yeah. There's a scene where he crashes a, like a tea service or yeah. a coffee cart or something that's so Chevy Chase. I mean, yes. it looked so much like Chevy Chase. But just the just his walk and just the lankiness that he put into it. Um, now, of course, Joel's in in great shape. So when yeah. you have muscles like that, you can pretty much do anything with your body. Matt knows this. I don't think you have to have muscles to be a good physical comedian. A lot of fat. Jackie Gleason was fat, and he was a great physical comedian. Sure, sure. So uh, you don't need the to bandit. be Smoking the, Smoky bandit, the bandit. Jackie Gleason show, Honeymooners. Uh, I mean, Belushi was heavy. He was a great physical comedian. Yeah. So one of the things that was interesting on the the sort of the the Doug Kenny story as it proceeded into the the film years, and when you start seeing these celebrities in the film, is that. 
there was this disconnect between Kenny and Saturday Night Live where all of these people who were working with Kenny for National Lampoon suddenly show up with Lorne Michaels on Saturday Night Live. How did that happen that Kenny was not involved in, 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 in SNL? Well, I have one tidbit to start it with, which was Maddie was offered a show on network TV like Saturday Night Live. may have even been ABC or NBC, but he turned it down. That's he said, right. we're too busy. That's like right. six months before SNL was coalesced into their pilot or whatever, he was offered the same deal and he turned it down. So uh, other than that, what else do you know? Uh, well, that's, How did Doug, that, yeah. that's the key thing. And I think Doug at the time also thought he was too busy. I don't, the way we portray it in the movie is almost, I think, that Maddie didn't even tell Doug about it because they thought it was like so uninteresting. What, who would want this, this 1130 a night show? But why do you think they never approached uh, Doug or Henry to be writers? Is that well? In uh, I guess Doug in the or, movie, yeah. the Lorne Michaels scene is he does ask Doug to write on it. Okay. Um, as what happened in real life, but after the show was a success, and Doug, yeah, you know, Doug didn't want to go work for someone else. Yeah. Um, so I think what happened is some version of Doug wasn't interested. Doug and Maddie weren't interested, and didn't pay any mind to it, and then it became something, and then it was too late. Uh, and you, one could argue whether uh, Doug ever would have gone in, gone and done movies with Doug and Maddie, because Maddie was a producer of of Animal House. Had there not been Saturday Night Live provoking them to then leapfrog over that into that other medium, how, how did you talk about casting? Doug was that was more of an open book because people don't know what Doug looks like and you were going to be playing him at a lot of different ages. Um, well, Doug, you know, I think we really had because of that a very open mind into who would play Doug because there was no preconception of, oh, this is they do a great Doug impression. Um, but we we all know Will's work, and uh, David knows Will personally, and uh, I think Peter does too. And somewhere in the process that we all go through together when we cast these things, it just became it just became clear that he was the person we felt was the the spirit of that character, um, the way we understood the character. I mean, this is the other hard thing is we're doing a biopic about someone. We were looking for video references of Doug. Uh, videotape interviews are very few. You know, it's not like wow. there's hours and hours and hours of material we can look for on him. We do a uh, a scene that's a basically a recreation of a Tom Snyder interview, played by Ed Helms. Also, another spot on yeah. look and impression. Yeah, surprising. Go ahead. Sorry, um, Ed Helms plays Tom Snyder. And we could not find the original interview. There's reports, there's some references to the interview and written material, and I think we found a photo. But so, Doug, uh, there's very little to go on in kind of a physical, verbal way. So now you're really talking about your deeper understanding of it. It was freeing that way. Uh, you're, you're not worried about an impression. Domhnall Gleeson plays this sort of pipe-smoking, smarty-pants type who had been friends with Doug in college and was involved in the lampoon and is sort of all through the film. I had no idea that was even him until I mm -hmm. paused it about 30 minutes into the film and looked it up. Do you know who I thought it was? 
I thought it was Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, sure. Oh, I had no idea it was Dom Noglis. I mean, he completely, of course, he's got this hair and glasses that he can sort of disappear under, but he's really, really uh, uh, amazing in this in this film. How did did you get him between the Star Wars movies? How did you even get him available uh, during the Star Wars movies? Um, which one was shooting then? Must have been the one that just came out. Yeah, it was. It was the one that just came out. Um, we were working around their schedule. Left and right, there are a lot of unknowns somewhere in there. I think there was some bad weather, and a set had to be rebuilt, and that's. But you know, it worked out. He was in the middle of it of Star Wars. He went back and forth. Uh, so he's going back and forth from London to LA. You made this in LA, I think, right? That's right. Um, yeah, wow. but but they have planes now, so it really it wasn't as hard as <laughs> it used to be in the old days. Uh, but I will say that. Uh, he, he was very faithful to not telling us anything about Star Wars. We asked him questions when we could, but he didn't spill anything. Yeah. He's very he would reliable. Get in big trouble. He would get in big trouble. I have things I want to do with my life. No, you have things you think you're supposed to do. What you want to do is keep on doing the lampoon. Oh, biomechanics of the human planet. Thanks. I'm looking everywhere for that. You want me to give up a career in law, to rely on you, and start a humor magazine which will undoubtedly fail. It won't, or it might, it might. But this will be big, I can feel it. How big? This big. You're thinking too small. It should be a big magazine size. See, that's better. I threw something out, you made it better. That's our partnership. You don't want to throw that away. If we're running our own magazine, we can do anything we want. We could publish knock-knock jokes. Knock-knock. Who's there? Me. Me who? Me not doing the magazine. <laughs> that can go in issue one. The film covers the making of Animal House and Caddyshack, where they're particular things uh, you were look looking forward to, to, to making or, or recreating about those, the food fight from Animal House or the ball washing scene from Caddyshack or some of those. Uh, um, Matt, what did you enjoy about it? You weren't in the, oh, you were in the Animal House scene, weren't you? Uh, I don't think so. No? Okay. No. Sorry. It was uh, a fun day. Oh, you would have had a ball. <laughs> That was the best day of the whole. I didn't film. even. I wasn't even invited to visit that day. You said, "Don't come by." <laughs> bad luck. Well, you know, fittings. Sure. No, I was free. I was definitely free. Uh, what were the iconic scenes that you couldn't wait to recreate, John Stern? <laughs> I will say that uh, something we laugh internally about is you see the recreation of Animal House in pure like hacky movie terms. Somehow everything is taking place in the same spot. Right there in front of the set, they're catering, they're doing hair and makeup, they're having script notes <laughs> meetings, like every piece of equipment is all right there in the front of the house. Like, we all know that's not how movies are made. You don't have makeup outside right next to the no. uh, buffet table. No. Um, but uh, uh, we, we did end up using a fair amount of VFX to make Animal House, duplicate Animal House. Um, However, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the car from Animal House that you see in our Animal House recreation is actually uh, Peter Principato's car. That Peter Principato, did you know uh, this, Matt? I don't think I knew that. So Peter bought a car because he was such a fan of Animal House and all of the, everything portrayed in this movie, Peter is an expert on. And uh, so he got that car intentionally years before we made this movie and then we brought the car into the Did he the rent set. it to you or did he give it to you free? Uh, he 
he tried to get a rental. Oh, yeah, Peter. But uh, Peter, you know, I don't Shame know. That, I don't think he ever cashed a check. <laughs> there was a little bit of dust on the car afterwards. Yeah, he freaked out. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> he didn't freak out. But we did wash the car. Everyone was. You could not be have been more careful of this car if the car was made out of crystal. I'm glad you guys recreated the uh, marching band into the dead end scene. Oh yeah, oh, that's the one. That's the one I was going to mention. Yeah, that is Doug's one of Doug's best scenes, only scenes in the movie, and that's really well done. And that was I remember that scene. It was so funny and blah blah blah. Yeah. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't realize that was Doug Kinney in Animal House as the band leader. Is, yeah. is that is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh wow. Which is uh, a metaphor for his role in that movie. And the comedy community altogether, mm-hmm. uh, leading the band into uh, chaos. Right, mm-hmm. Matt. He's a subversive band leader. This is premiering at Sundance Film Festival and then going to Netflix. I, and I'm sure y'all have both had films in Sundance in, in in previous years. How much have you seen the way Sundance has changed as a market for films like this? I will say that the first movie I produced that we submitted to Sundance, there were 400 other movies submitted that year. And we were like, oh, man, we're never going to get in. The odds, And we didn't get in, by the way. But was four, that the 10? No, no. This was, um, uh, it was Diggers? Tw- 25 years ago. No, it was a long okay, time ago. Sorry. It was like year three of Sundance. Okay. But and it, this year, how many were submitted would be your guess? I, I don't know. 5,000, 10,000? I, I I'm pretty sure it's north of 10,000. Wow. But the I, that's what I've seen change is, is the amount of submissions. Do you think Redford will come to a screening? Uh, Do you think this is something that he'd be interested in? Well, or does he not? He doesn't show up. He do, uh, from he what I understand, he does. I've never seen him at a screening there. Yeah, but I that'd mean, be that's a real, not out of the question. That'd be a real anointing if he popped in to see this movie. That'd be pretty. He neat. made a he made yeah. a movie for Netflix. That's a good point. <gasps> we'll work our Net- let's work our Netflix connections and get him there. We'll save Miss. You know what we'll do? We'll just tape a seat every screening for Mister Redford, and then the word will get out. Robert Redford's going to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your script. Redford's coming. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave on his chair. We'll leave a script for your next project. Yes. Well, you know, you talk about Sundance films. Uh, uh, Matt, you're finishing a film now that you produced <laughs> <laughs> that could very well be in Sundance next year or Toronto or South by Southwest. Is this the Lost in France film? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on with it. I think it may come out in May. But yes, that is an indie film that I produced and we shot in France. Thank you for bringing that up. For all you listeners, keep an eye out for Lost in France starring Matt Walsh. Yeah. David Wayne. David, David Wayne's Wayne. in that too, right? Is That's also right. in it. Gary Cole, Reed Scott, a lot of great Judith Godresh, a lot of great people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you've directed a few films yourself. And so, Matt, I guess the question I'd have for you is... Uh, <laughs> As a director, um, what do you think of David's directing? What would you have done differently? Is that a He's hijacking question? your interview here, Scott. But I'll, I'll well, answer. We're it. almost we're almost done, so I, it's, it's it's I'll open the floor to uh, to questions. Well, we have one from John Stern in the front row. So <laughs> <laughs> David's directing style is great because he's super talented and he's visually creative and he's a funny person. So me personally, he doesn't tend to give me a ton of notes, but if he doesn't like, he's like, he'll just be like blunt and say, no, that's not it. 
So I enjoy working with David because I trust his vision and his aesthetic. And he's a funny, you know, he's legit funny, which is always great when you're doing a comedy. So uh, he's a joy. He's a true joy to work with. All right, Matt, you get a you get a free John Stern question. Uh, John, what are you most excited about at Sundance? Uh, this is an honest answer. For the first, uh, so was mine. By the way, you're saying like my answer wasn't honest. Uh, I meant to. Imply, <laughs> oh, this well, this one's going to be honest. Uh, I just meant to imply I'm going to give an interesting answer. Oh, mine was an interesting. Yeah. All right. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, that's because like, David's not, familiar. Yeah. Hearing true. people say they like David is old school, old hat. For it's you. true. I don't. Everyone likes David. Yeah. Um, I, I I've been to Sundance with films before, and we've always been trying to get a lot it. of. I mean, it'd be too many to list, but you've probably been there six, seven times at least. Um, that, that wouldn't be the case. No. No, and we could list the films. Okay. All right. But, Go ahead. Uh, but every time I've gone previously with a film, you're trying to get a distributor, and it's the most stressful thing. Mm-hmm. And this time we have a distributor, Netflix, and so we get to walk in there and just enjoy the screening and not sweat over. Oh, is uh, is, is so? So you're looking for... forward to watching a movie that you've already seen fifty times. That's what you're most <laughs> looking forward to at Sundance. <laughs> That's it. not an honest answer. <laughs> Believe it or not, I am looking forward. But with to this newfound freedom an and this new relief of pressure, what are you going to do with this optimism and joy that you're walking into the festival? Is there anything you? You're just sitting down. What, what, what answer do you want me to give? Like, I'm, go to the swag I'm putting rooms? you... I don't know. What else is there to do? Ski, I see w- other films, uh, the press junkets, I don't know, <laughs> the house, the, the hotel. Um, I'm looking forward to getting out of my house for a few days, <laughs> uh, back to having kids. Um, I'm looking forward to... So uh, you're going to enjoy... Just really focusing on the audience's reaction. That's your honest answer. My honest answer is I'm going to enjoy that screening as opposed to sit at the screening and be sweating the whole time and wondering what everyone's thinking Got and it. who's walking out. Because people walk out at these screenings oh, yeah. all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always a certain um, – Sometimes it's just people like the distributors, business people. That, Look, we got to get to the next screening. It starts in half an hour. Yeah. And it's very off-putting. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also looking forward to spending a few days. It's a little reunion of the cast and crew, Wayne, Peter, Colton Abood, actors Ma- Matthew, galore. and um, almost all of our, not all of our actors, but almost all of our actors, I think, will be there. Most of them. And, uh, and that's what we can do. This has become the big press rollout for it because it's premiering on Netflix on the 26th and it's premiering in Sundance on the 24th. So all our press except for this podcast, is going to be that week. And so we're all going to be together. And, you know, that's really fun. Yeah. And usually when we're all, the last time we were all together, we were working very hard. And it's like, great, we have 20 minutes for lunch and we're watching the clock and now I'm exhausted. And this is a chance you have to actually just visit with each other a little bit. And some people, uh, you know, haven't seen for a long time. Matt, I'm happy to say I get to see every so often. We see, yeah, we see each other a fair amount. Well, John Stern and Matt Walsh, I really appreciate uh, y'all talking to me. I think this is a, a film about a period of comedy history that people probably need to know more about if they're interested in how comedy uh, got to be the way it is. And at least that's 
how how it how it struck me. So I, I appreciate y'all making it, and I appreciate you talking to me about it. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks for your interest. <laughs>